Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotze. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on a Reikian-based psychotherapist named Scott Nichols, who specializes in helping people connect to their bodies and to release what he believes is the trauma that everybody has and that most of the diagnoses that we see are naming of symptoms that arose from trauma and that he believes that we live in a culture where everyone has trauma trapped in their body and that it's not something that you can think your way out of, that it's something that you have to somatically release. And this podcast is full of gems. He is incredible. And it was a true honor to be able to talk to somebody who is so deep in the work. You guys are going to love this podcast and I recommend that you bring something to take notes with. And as always, the podcast is brought to you by my courses on my website and my newsletter. If you'd like to support the podcast, I would appreciate if you would share the newsletter and the courses with anybody that you think it will help. I really put my heart into both of those. And as always, thank you guys so much for your time and your attention. Please enjoy. Namaste. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, someone who listens or reads my newsletter last week when I started to write about trauma, uh, he reached out and he was like, you have got to talk to this guy that I know about trauma. And he linked us up. I sent you an email. You said yes. And here we are. And so the question that I like to ask to help the listeners get a sense of who they're listening to is, Let's say that you just finished doing something that puts you into flow. And then I asked you afterwards, I walked up to you and asked, who are you and what do you do? What would you say? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think I would just say that uh, I am a human being who sh has who struggled and was in pain and sought out how to get out of that pain and all the ways that I tried to get out of pain just kept me there. And then when I kind of started to come into my body and get help, I started to realize um, that I was my body and that my body was crying out for me to pay attention. And that was the beginning of a, of a different reality for me. I'm so excited about everywhere that this conversation can go, but there's still a couple of like intro questions to help people kind of get a sense. So I'm going to try to... with withhold my enthusiasm but how would your best friend describe you and what you do about what i do or who i am both so how would they describe who you are and then how would they describe what you do uh, i would say most people would describe me as uh, loyal um determined stubborn 
and um, inspiring. And how I would describe what I do is, is I feel like um, it's my deep sort of soul service to help help us as a humanity waken up, get out of the head and back into the flesh. Mm, I love it. How would your closest romantic partner slash wife describe you and what you do? Oh, probably all very similar. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all pretty intimate. Um, you know, the, the work that I do is intimate. And I think that the direction we need to go as, as humans is to reclaim the, the real estate of the intimacy and to break down that word into me, you see that yes. we're born for connection. We are hardwired for connection and we have overcomplicated so much that connection is so scary and difficult now, but it's our second nature. I cannot wait to get deeper into that. This is the last, you know, intro question is how would God or whatever word you would use to describe that felt sense of something else that is higher and larger and wiser and whimsical. How would that thing describe Scott and what Scott is doing in the world? You know, that's a, that's a funny question. I would say that we are, there is no description because we are that thing that you're describing. Mm. The, 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 the great mystery of our body is that it's already awake and connected to everything. Interesting. It's our mind that is the great fool. So, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So <clears throat> can you give us kind of a brief intro into what brought you to the work and how would you describe the work it is that you do? Yeah. So on, on multiple fronts, I am... Um, engaged in this world of embodiment. At one level, uh, I'm a somatic psychotherapist train, trained in what's called orgone psychotherapy. Along with that, I'm trained in a whole variety of modalities, which are pretty vast. But I'm more specifically trained in Wilhelm Reich's original form of breath and body work and what's called orgone psychotherapy. But on top of that, I'm also a, a, a teacher at a uh, interdisciplinary liberal arts school here in Bellingham, Washington called Fairhaven College, which is under the tutelage or under the umbrella of Western Washington University. And so the degrees that my students get are self-designed. So it's very much like um, uh, Evergreen, you know, Evergreen College, if you're familiar with that. So yeah. I, I teach at the college level undergraduates, um, but I teach also radically different because I include the body as a source of knowing and as a source of intelligence. And, um, and, then, and then I work regularly with, with traumatized clients. Um, so a, aside from that, that's just like the specificity of my day-to-day -day life is that I'm uh, either teaching or seeing clients. Um, how I got to this is the first question, right, Eric? Yes. Um, um, I grew up in a, you know, pretty, pretty, I don't know if it's standard or not, but, you know, pained full family with no language and no sense of 
why I was in so much pain because I had all my physical needs met, but had no sense that I had emotional needs. I just was hurting. And, um, long story short, I went to India thinking that, um, a guru or a teacher or hiking in the Himalaya for five months alone would, would cure my pain only to find out that it just exacerbated the pain and was awesome at the same time. And I had a, uh, kind of a with existential dilemma when I was 28 up in, up in Alaska, uh, the winter of uh, Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> and I just knew I needed to do something new because I'd been traveling and I was a river guide for on and off for years and that funded my traveling. And so I was kind of living this nice Peter Pan life until I had this existential dilemma in 99, the winter of 99, and moved down to Bellingham to study Aikido and to finish my undergraduate degree for which I quit after four years, one class away from a college degree and had to go to India. I just got obsessed. And it wasn't until I was in this class at the college I actually teach at in 2002 before I was a teacher there uh, that one of the teachers taught a class called Awareness Through the Body. And I had multiple profound experiences in that that were like, whoa, But then this one guy came who facilitated some breath work that's like in the lineage of Wilhelm Reich. And I started sobbing. Mm -hmm. And I immediately was like, oh, my God, I need more of this. So I I found my teacher, my sort of what I like to call um, my my Yoda, Dr. Dan Schiff, who's now in Portland, um, who's probably, you know, most, you know, Reich taught this one guy and that guy taught Dr. Dan and then Dan taught me. And, uh, I just, every time I went in, I just was sob and I had no idea as a white male, how much pain I was in yeah, and how freeing it was simply that he could just touch my chest and I would sob yeah, and how sobbing was freeing. And that, as I look back on all this time in India and this sort of, you know, kind of cosmic need, I was realizing that I was just looking for more cosmic bypass in a spiritual place where I would just not have to feel my feelings. But then as I started to feel them, it was an awakening for me. And after being a client for seven to 10 years, I thought, I I want to free others. And so I got my master's and and since, but you know, it was the combination of psychotherapy and Aikido that really worked well together. Interesting. So here I am living my, my, you know, I, I, I knew I had a sort of a destiny calling, but I didn't know what the hell it looked like. Yeah. And I had no idea that coming to Bellingham from Alaska would lead, it, <laughs> lead me there. And it did. So I, I definitely am grateful that I have just landed where I'm at. I love that so much. The first thing that comes, so many things come up and I've, man, I've, I'm just so excited to be talking to you, but um, for people who don't know, and I also think that you probably have a more intimate understanding of him than I do. Could you explain who Wilhelm Reich was and what it is that he taught? Yes. (laughs) Um, So first of all, we have to just address that 
what the American sort of consciousness has done to Freud is to pornographize, you know, to turn what Freud talked about into this all about sex and, and parts. Right. But, you know, Freud was really trying to come up with a language in the pre-World War II era to describe these energies that were the source of trauma for so many of his clients. Yeah. And he knew it was about sensation and the sensual erotic self. And as Americans, we hear those words and immediately think sex. But that's because we've become such a pornographied culture that everything that is on a spectrum of anything dealing with physicality and attraction must end in an orgasm. Interesting, yeah. We've become blindsided by the end goal and the sort of terror of sexualization. And that sensuality is at the thrust of children's need to simply belong. That our body is a social primate body and that it is hardwired to connect. And that, that one of the needs that we have that's greater than food is to belong. Yeah. And that the adaptive identity will find its way to belong at every cost of one's true identity. And mm. so we find ourselves in these like developmental trauma. There, you know, I like to differentiate between developmental trauma and shock trauma. Shock trauma being yes. physical, sexual, emotional abuse, things that are just overwhelmingly astounding. But usually people who have shock trauma have sh shock trauma within a milieu of profound developmental trauma. And I like to describe developmental trauma as death by a paper cut. It's not the one time my mom or my dad gave me that look. It's the 10,000 times. Yeah. And that in those 10,000 times, I started to shape and breathe and, and hold my body in a shape right. full of tension that requires energetic um, requirements, caloric reality, to hold that shape. And then as I develop, I think I'm that shape. And then we get sick, we have uh, some kind of crisis or emergency, and we realize that the shape we're in is not who we are. And that we can't figure it out because it's not in our heads. That trauma like this, the complexity of PTSD with shock trauma and developmental trauma, or just even developmental trauma, it goes as deep as digestion. So we didn't, this morning's breakfast did not become a bowel movement because I thought about it. It's in the unconscious processes of the body. And when it comes right. to trauma, those are the same processes that are at play in survival mode. Right. They're as deep as digestion. So we can't think our way in or out of it. So, so many, so much of our world is so dominated with this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it. And yet, we can't do it because we can't do it alone because we didn't do it to ourselves. So the body and Freud, they were onto a, an early understanding that what gets constellated in the family system shows up in the flesh mm. and usually shows up as issues in attachment, connection, and the enjoyment of each other. 
yeah. be that in play or be that in, in, in lovemaking. But how much fear and, and fragility or armoring or guardedness people have, Freud and, and Reich were just seeing how non-vulnerable the Austrian world was in the early 1920s. And that those physical armorings, our, our, our defense system, which is connected to the autonomic nervous system, when it's prioritized around love and belonging, it's confusing. And so our bodies start to have pains and have a voice. For instance, I have men who, when they don't cry, they end up leaving my office because they can't cry, not because I'm, because they physically can't cry. They have IBS immediately after the session. They have diarrhea mm -hmm. or same with women, but it's that if they can't feel their anger, Instead, they get the flu after a session because things get somatized that don't get verbalized. I love that. So the body is the, you know, who we are is not the narrative voice. It's the sum total of our wholeness. I'll, yeah. I'll posit that. Is and that so, Eric? Is oh my God, yes. I, I, I'm in complete resonance with everything that you have said. Um, and you've described Freud and the body. And so how does that lead into Wilhelm Reich? Well, Reich was drawn to, to Freud, probably for why anyone was drawn to Freud. He was talking in a new language and offering yep. a new understanding of, of the psyche. And, um, you know, but Reich and Freud we're like, Freud was like, hey, Wilhelm, you're my, you're my favorite and best student. Would you figure out why and how psychoanalytic theory doesn't work? And Reich was like, sure. And so he, he just stayed curious that when a client would say free associate, he would notice that their skin color would change or their mouth would get tense. And then he stayed curious and would say, well, what would happen if you at this very moment opened your mouth? instead of closing it. And then they would sob. And as they would sob, he would see, oh, they would feel better and they would breathe more fully and their nervous system had more balance. And so he developed as sort of a branch off of Freud's original ideas. And remember, Freud's original ideas are not about intercourse, but about connection, belonging, and the sensual childhood need to feel like you belong and you're known and seen. And these are not forces in the brain alone. They are like in the gut. And the pleasure of being held by a mother or father as a child, it does go into the genitals, but it's not about the genitals. And so Freud was hung up here because the genitals and sexuality has been a historical issue for us humans because we are from sex, but yet we can't talk about it because of this divide in the Christian world of you're born a sinner. So everything being born must be disgusting. You must be, so all things sort of below the head was associated with the earth, sex, women, people of color, South America, <laughs> South of the equator, South of my belly button. We should avoid it. And in fact, we should control it but, you know, pleasure is not just about intercourse. 
pleasure is about existence. And so Freud and Reich had a break because what Reich was doing was freeing his clients from a thousand years of sexual denial. How was he doing that? Just getting people to breathe and, and kicking their legs and feeling that they have a brain in their belly, right? And that, that pleasure wasn't just about intercourse, but about do you enjoy the work you're doing? Do you enjoy your marriage? Does it feel right, good, and true? And you can't come to that through an intellectual feeling. So Reich was, had to wake up the whole body brain, and then the people would say, oh my God, this life I'm living, I don't really like it. Yeah. And so people started orienting towards what felt good, right, and true. And that was a revolution in that time. And my understanding is that he eventually comes to America, and I don't understand what happens other than the ending of his life seemed tragic and cruel about how he was received by our government. Could you share that story if you understand it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've spent a lot of time geeking out on, on his literature and books. But, um, you know, the American psyche for as sort of open-minded as we think we are, we're actually quite rigidly uh, formed around Christianity. And Reich already had a big hubbub in the West, Europe. He was kind of kicked out of everywhere because everyone, he, first of all, Reich was a scientist and articulate within the realm of, say, physics, but not so articulate in the realm of the heart. So he's trying to describe what I'm talking about, and I'm speaking at it from multiple generations away, having really uh, been a client of, of the Reichian way, but also a, a, a psychotherapist now for many years, going on uh, 20 years now. And so I speak the language of Reich from the heart, but he couldn't speak that language. He was stuck in the 1940s and 50s where it was all science. So he was trying to bring people to the orgasm and the necessity of the orgasm through scientific language, which, you know, back in the 40s, you mentioned the word sex and intercourse and you get a wall of repression, a wall of avoidance, a wall of collective denial that that's something we should talk about. And so he just got denied and rejected and you know, a combination of, of attempts to sort of teach and attempts to sort of push back a, a, against the authority just led to this sort of um, continual rejection of his work throughout the European to American world. And I think it just killed him. And what was the behaviors that he was doing in his work to help people connect to the orgasm specifically? Well, you know, working with the autonomic nervous system is loud and messy. Imagine that the child who was a good Christian child, let's just say, in the early 1940s and 50s, who learned how to hold in <clears throat> their whiny needs or how to hold in and model and 
mimic their staunch, hardened heart fathers. And then all of those screams and wails and longings of that little person are still caught in their body. And in fact, are caught in their tissue because what fires together wires together. And it's not that that child chose to do that. That child had to do that. But now this child is hard and cold and maybe in their mid-30s with a bloated gut and some kind of physical issues and a failing marriage. And they go to see a Reiki therapist and the therapist starts pushing on their ventral vagal polyvagal nerve system and they start screaming and crying and losing control. And it's loud, but they feel better. They feel freer. But it scared everyone in that whole time period. Mm. That how could anyone get better by being so impolite and so um, out of the range of normal, right? The repression in America just couldn't handle Reich's um, (laughs) therapeutic bravado. Right. And we, so, weren't, we weren't it, ready. It, and so for you, um, I guess the question to start with, because now I'm really interested to start to get into how you see all of this. Um, when you first began your work, uh, what was the first like surprising insight or really effective tool that kind of got you having hope that what you were doing was working. Well, the thing about Reich's work is that it's really an elegant, experiential, embodied map of understanding the layers of complexity we humans will use unconsciously to keep our own pain away from our own nose and eyes. (laughs) We are so good at not facing the lions that are running us down, that we have forgotten that there are lions. And so the, the elegance is not to figure it out in an analytical figuring out mind because the mind is part of the defense system. Right. But for instance, a female client who when she first came in was, anytime I would try to bring her attention to what I saw in her eyes, and you might know, Eric, that the eyes are part of the involuntary nervous system, whereas the mouth is very voluntary. Interesting. So her, yes. her eyes, I, I work almost entirely with the, the top of the ventral, the whole polyvagal nerve is the eyes. Mm. And so her eyes would show so much sorrow. And I, I always take history, so I know that there's sorrow, but she couldn't tolerate showing the sorrow, so her mouth would move in a really obsessive pattern. And so I got her curious about her mouth, got her slowing down her mouth. And then I had her do this with her lips, like three or four times. And she started to sob. So there are all of these physiological moves we make to keep our own trauma from rising. And these are micro movements, ticks 
things we call Tourette's or things we call ADD, when I think of them, I think of shifts away. Wow, yeah. Subtle ways that we keep ourselves running from our own deepest truths because there is not a society or a culture that can receive and understand how big that energy needs to be and can be to be relieved and to be sort of completed because emotions are energy in motion. Right. And if we don't use that energy in motion, then it gets caught as action sequences stuck in the body. Yes. And, and this, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Peter Levine was actually an orgone psychotherapist. I did not know that. Before. And so when I read his work, I'm like, wow. Interesting. He took how I might work in a, in a, longer session and, and took the sort of understanding of making contact with the charge, the sensational buildup of energy, and just lingering there and titrating it. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just a, a brilliant uh, understanding of Reich. So it feels like what you're saying is you learn how to watch the animal body. You yes. learn how the <clears throat> energy is moving through the animal body and then where it starts to move away from whatever, how the energy wants to move through the body. And then the Reikian way is to, I'm sure you have a whole set of intuitive like movements and tools and questions that you ask to get someone to... I imagine it's a lot like river guiding in the sense that like if you see that there's like a blockage in a part of the river, you ask them by doing a movement like with their mouth or their eyes or their arms or their throat that forces that blockage to become less concretized. And then whatever emotion was trying to be avoided breaks through and yeah. tends to come through as either crying or screaming um, what are some of the other major discharges that you see other than crying and screaming? Even just shaking, their, their yeah. chin shaking. You know, the shaking is the nervous system coming out of years of tension. Yeah. And the shaking is the brain going, wait, can I let it go? Mm. Hold, hold, let go, hold, let go. Hold. You know, and, and the nervous system is trying to remember, oh, I don't have to do that. And that's when a client goes, oh, wow. And so much of my clients are trying so hard that they've lost their way to being themselves. They're trying so hard to get their mother's love. They're trying so hard to be, to earn their keep. They're trying so hard to be the good person that's lovable in this world of values that values hard effort. But it's all this effort that masks the soft sweetness underneath there that's just longing for connection and sweetness. If you had to look back on your professional history, what were like the landmark like insight moments where either through a session or I'm, I'm sure most of it probably happened in sessions where you witnessed something that kind of like fundamentally deepened your understanding of this work. And I'm just curious, like how many of those like epochs have you had in your work? And if you could share what they were. <laughs> Do they ever stop? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like sitting with such 
pure, unadulterated agony with another client is just like, I mean, it's just heartbreakingly beautiful and astonishing that they've held it in. And so there's this other part that's just like the humility of witnessing human suffering, but also how it is through the suffering that they become free. Yeah. Rather than the avoidance. 100%. And so I don't, I, I never know what I'm doing. <laughs> but I just keep showing up. Yeah. And, and tending to the body. And I have moments where I don't know what to do. And I think, and I pray to some unknown intelligence, <laughs> more infinite than me, what do I do? And then I realize that maybe not knowing what to do is exactly what's needed in this moment. Right. That's so hard for me to accept at times, but I hear the truth in what you're saying. And then I just say to the client, I don't know how to help you here, but I am going to just keep trying. And that, you know, part of, I think the, the Reikian way for me is just about being real in a world full of falseness and performance that my clients feel just better when I'm just real with them rather than performing therapist. Mm, I love it. Yes. What are the most common um, like diagnoses that you see bring people to you where you then realize that that diagnosis is a misunderstanding of trauma? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I've had waves of clientele types because the way that this small community of Bellingham, Washington that I live in, uh, people talk. And so there was a wave where I just had so many people with autoimmune mm. disorders um, coming in. And I had to seek a, a lot of mentoring from uh, my teachers who are also Reiki and therapists. And it all came down to this self-attack. Right. And then as I worked with them, I was like, wow, their body is crying because they can't defend their body. In fact, they can't stop beating their body in, in, internally. And a lot of it is female. And so the other astonishing thing is how enculturated these wounds of the individual are group-held traumas. The wound of the feminine and the loss of their voice and the wound of the masculine and the loss of their softness and their ability to cry. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure you see these themes too, just like the collectively held body in, in a shape. Right. Especially with the rise of social media, it seems to be that these collective wounding patterns um, are just more visible than they've ever been before. Totally. Yeah, so I mean, Wilhelm Reich talked about the emotional plague. And I would say we are looking at, we are living in this time of the emotional plague. And he described it as when... When the whole population is so armored, rigid in their bodies, not breathing much, that they become hateful and small. And so in their head that everything is a war or a binary, something right. to oppose. Well, if you say black, I say white or vice versa, you know, in, 
in a million different myriad of ways. Right. When we lose the organs of the body, the heart, the brain without a heart is Hitler. Mm. The brain without contact with the belly and the genitals is a loss of pleasure and a, and a, and a gain of bitterness. You know, the, the, the organs balance the brain. How has your life changed as a function of beginning to do the work? Like, what are some big things that you've seen either in your own healing or in your own understanding or your own transformation um, as you've, you know, really said yes to your soul path? Eric, can you speak a little louder into your... Absolutely. Oh, there um, we go. I, yeah. I heard it. It was just, it's really faint. Yeah, so um, the question, again, uh, in case people listening couldn't hear me, was uh, how has your life transformed from doing this work, either uh, in your own healing or in your own awareness, your relationships or your own transformations? Well, you know, coming, um, you know, my my first undergraduate degree was was philosophy and religion, and I would consider myself at that time a seeker and thinking that the spiritual was the direction uh, I was called to, to sort of unfold. And the, the, the extreme about face that I have felt both as a client and as a practitioner is how those two things are coming together more and more through the body and how the body is already the cosmos awake. Wow. And how there is a spirituality that we are born into and with without it being a cognitive download from a history. But rather the intuitive nature of the flesh is to pray. But what to? Does it matter? But rather to speak to the web of life that we are infinitely and intimately connected to. Yeah. And so the more I come into my own body and the intimacy of my body, the more inside of me i hear the whispers of the mm. infinite god i love it for Which, people i'm sorry please go on for me it just helps me feel like a better parent and more connected to my wife and more understanding and more compassionate of the human condition and that there is no political structure or social justice movement that's going to cure this and we keep trying to cure this human condition but really we just need to stop trying to cure it and learn to love it and to live it yeah and and to love this body and and in so doing we love each other we love this earth that a community of people loving themselves is not narcissism but rather a responsibility at this time to care for this earth because as long as we other ourselves we will other everyone and our yeah. own, our own planet and so the scourge of this self-hatred is what we're witnessing in this time for people listening who are completely on board with everything that you're saying, um, and maybe they're telling the story that they don't have access or the money to a Reikian therapist, but they wanted to do work on their own, um, what would you recommend or say? Oh, man. This has been my second life's mission. That's why I've been teaching at the undergraduate level. I've been... One of the things I did at my master's on was wondering, could education be therapeutic without it being held in a therapeutic container? Mm. 
That's that's what I'm obsessed with. I um yes. Do you know the work of Lou Cozzolini? No. He's a neuroscientist, and he he wrote really I think his formative work. I can't think of the name at the moment, but his, he's a neuroscientist, Lou Cozzolini, and basically the with the presence of cortisol, protein synthesis shuts down. And protein synthesis in the brain is what's responsible for the creation of dendritic connections, right. which is learning. So the presence of cortisol shuts down learning. And the presence yep. of oxytocin not just excites it, but makes it more available. Interesting. And so what I've been experimenting in my undergraduate classes now for the last 15 years or so is using the body as it's it, the body is a relational reality, right? So using the body and naming that it's okay to be awkward, it's okay to not be cool, it's okay to be the human goofball <laughs> dork that you are. So let's stop pretending that we're anything other than we are. And then over the time of a quarter, so we're in the quarter system, which right in my college is about nine weeks. I build a field of connection between the students and the content is second, secondary to their connection. Right. And then the content becomes a fluid dynamic that's exchanged in more of a connective group field. And what my students end up learning is more than they would have if they had memorized and shoved a whole bunch of crap in their head because they should, because that's knowledge. Right. What they end up with is shared wisdom, more emergence, and more confidence in their relational capacities than knowing tidbits of disconnected information. And so I've been working on an online platform to create an online school. Yes. But I'm really fucking just, just, I just don't know how to do it. And I don't know if I want to keep working in this sort of internet mode because it's, disconnecting right so <clears throat> i'm really in a conflict in my heart with how to do this how to support our humanity and our populations um in ways that are matter but also ways that are connected and so to answer your question i'm still exploring that at a bigger scale and a small scale i've had the honor of exploring that at this college now for quite a while and i feel like i've gotten a hold of this this idea of embodied learning through eye contact and and connectivity and relationality as the as the forefront of learning rather than the content and what i'm hearing you say is that the most powerful way that you have found to teach people is if you can get them together physically in such a way where they produce oxytocin and that allows their learning to um their learning capacity to be higher than if they didn't have that presence and that it happens when they are together. And so it sounds like you probably do a lot of activities that have people get into their body and then relate to other bodies. Yes. And that that's the first thing we do is get into our bodies and then relate with our bodies. And then I also promote them to make eye contact, soften right. their mouth, and have a more vulnerable part of their nervous system available. So I do a lot of work with the parasympathetic. Pre-COVID, I had my students doing these sort of somatic bodywork treatments on each other that were like jostling and very loose, but also very um, um, 
consent-based, and I would talk people through them, give everyone a choice, and then come to the activity, and then they would soften, dropping down into their parasympathetic, digest, rest, and they would come out of those, and I would have them connect, and they would be safe, intimate, and then I would maybe give a short lecture, or we would talk about the reading, and I would watch the group's nervous system, and when the nervous system got to a certain point, I would have them play, have fun, laugh, and then go back into the intimacy, right? So I'm constantly regulating the affect and the connection of the room. Right. Rather than worrying about content. Absolutely. One of the things that it feels, that I feel called to share with you is that I'm a part of a online mastermind where essentially what we do is we use the internet for a couple of weeks at a time to teach some specific thing. And then we have everybody meet physically somewhere and then we go through like this five-day period where we do a bunch of experiential practices and some workshops and it seems like that is the most powerful in-between medium is to use this to use the internet to give the content and then to every you know couple of months bring them together to embody it and we have found that the content almost doesn't matter at all. Totally. But, it's, but the content allows them to start to learn a language and to allow them to begin to connect. And that once they get in person, it's just explosions of healing and transformation that all of the coaches, we just stand back and we're like, we did not do this. They did this to each other. We just provided the container. And that feels like that could be something that you could play with to merge these two is what can be the in-between content that then is punctuated by these powerful experiential weeks or weekends. Yeah, nice. Yeah, totally. And, and I've experimented with that. And that was sort of my original idea with developing an online platform was just giving everyone the content so that they could be prepared with the framing Right. Experiential. So I'm curious, this is something that I've realized in my personal life through tough trial and error. Um, Very intellectual in my early 20s. um, And it was a place, you know, it was a way that I kept safe because I wasn't secure feeling my emotions. And whenever I would have a tough conversation with a loved one, we would just sit down and talk. And it never actually helped like maybe sometimes it would bring some like you know slowing of the breath and there might be a shift but very often not and the last like year or two i can feel that like when i have to have a tough conversation with a loved one before any talking happens like our physiology has to feel safe and so i'm curious um what are there any like specific tactics or techniques that people can like really feel into if you're going to have a you know tough quote-unquote truth conversation with a close partner whether it be friendship or marriage or whatever uh, how can people get their bodies to feel safe before they start using the mind to do the mind thing well you know one of the things about uh, the recent world of neuroscience and our nervous systems and the you know, Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory is the face. 
micro muscles in the mouth and the face cue us to either danger or safety. So softening the face, softening the breath and sounds, for instance, part of, I think, the beauty of being a therapist is you learn how to take your client's defenses down simply by your own behavior. Right. And I think in this time, we all need to become experts of not just taking each other's defenses down, but taking our own. Right. And part of that, I think, is softening the mouth, softening the eyes, and exhaling softly with sound. <sighs> and and our our voice is, you know, you you know, you you're familiar with Stephen Porges's work. I mean, just notice if I start to talk with more angularity and more intensity, then our nervous systems change right. because of the physiology of relationships. You know, so if I go slow, that's softening mm. and preparing for something more vulnerable. So a thing just comes up. Um, do you think that that is the essence of what uh, hypnotists and trance, or like what hypnotists do in that, um, I find that, are you familiar with, I believe his name is uh, Milton Erickson? Oh yeah, definitely. And like he could put people into trance simply through speaking. And his voice is so slow and melodic and almost demanding you to slow. And you know, like it's, it's hard for me to even purposefully talk like that. Um, do you see a connection there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think per part of that is just accessing, you know, the parasympathetic is pro-social, it's digestive and, you know, rest and digest. And so it actually takes less energy to connect. And the only way we truly can connect is through the parasympathetic. Right. And, you know, we all love the Brene Brown world. The Brene Brown, what she was speaking to in, in the intellect is this place that we're talking about. But the physicality of embodying these concepts, we're out of the cultural habit of recognizing them. You know, so creating a culture of a soft face, soft voice is a practice. A practice of interrelating in a way that calms the nervous system rather than amplifies. What in your professional work do you feel that you struggle with the most or that um, has the most resistance for you? Um, hmm. I think I struggle the most just with, I want to help more people. Right, right. And I can't see more clients than I already have. And I, right. But, you know, it's like trying, you know, this conversation about the, what's the model that can contain a larger civil psychotherapy uh, without it being, you know, like you said, not everyone can go get one-on-one -on -one therapy. You know, so I do feel like we're at this point in our evolution that we do need all of our, like you and I talking and whoever else is in our, in our field to sort of work together to create the next new net of civil psychotherapy. How do we help the most people who also just, you know, who don't have access? Right. I saw this amazing quote, and it's, it was something along the lines of, um, 
if the poor don't have access to it, it's not revolutionary. Totally. Absolutely. And I, I just loved when I read that. Um, what? So I've been really curious um, in understanding trauma and then healing trauma specifically. And we've talked about it a little bit here, but for people listening, um, how would you describe trauma to them in a way that would allow them to recognize it within themselves and then um, let's say that they're just listening to this podcast and they have no idea or no history about everything that we've talked about so far um, and you could point them in one direction. Uh, what comes up? Huh. Well, um, I first of all, just to name, I've got about 10 or 12 minutes left, okay? Understood. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I have a lot of people interested in, in my work and my practice, and so I, I've been referring people out. And there's a lot of new somatic practitioners that because it's it's really the, the next wave of psychotherapy um you know there's all those waves right the fourth wave etc i think we're you know the the somatic revolution is is sort of near and so i refer a lot of people out just get in their body get body work get some cranial work get some healing some touch work and i wish um there were like more free like part of what I'd like to offer on my, my future website is just free classes. I just want to give this stuff away. But one thing, because I'm tired of fucking all these people who have all this power of healing and they're just making money off of it. Right. And I don't know. I don't know if that just really bothers me right now. Cause I feel like it's like, we need it all hands on deck. Let's just give it away and give it to the people who need it. That's just my little aside. But as far as trauma, a lot of it to me is in the eyes you know, we mm. see the eyes and the face, the, the vagal nerve is showing all of us, each other, our shame. So when you can't look in the mirror and you can't make eye contact with your own mirror and your own eyes, shame is its own trauma. There's enough shame in so many females that I would put it into the category of PTSD amounts of shame and shame yeah. toxicity where it makes yep. their physical and physically sick. Um, but the eyes, and starting with the eyes and EMDR, which is, I think, the first wave of acknowledging that the body is, is a major part of trauma. Right. And I do a lot of eye work. And I think EMDR is a great door because insurance companies cover it. Right. You know, they don't cover anything else with the body, but they will cover EMDR. And I think it's a great start. And there are practitioners who have integrated somatic work with EMDR and essentially you know Reich does he did a lot with the eyes because it's it's the point of contact our face is a social organ and when the eyes are not able to look out and reach for connection we feel alone and alienated and the thing about trauma is that most of our trauma was not done alone it was done too interesting much. yes and so, so many of my clients, when they're crying and they start to cover their eyes with their face, or with their, I'm sorry, with their face with their hand, I tell them to look at me. Yes. And as they look at me, they realize it's okay to feel that feeling, which brings the feeling to completion. 
because their habit is that the moment they feel that feeling, they feel ashamed, they're going to get attacked and it's wrong. And so the, the feeling never completes, which means they're never out of that trauma. So these emotions are caught. Like I like to think of trauma as like, if you push print on your computer and nothing comes out of the printer and you push it again, you push it again. And then you realize, Oh shit, there's no paper. (laughs) <laughs> you put paper in it and then how many copies do you get exactly wow many commands and so imagine trauma commands in the body but the but if it's relational trauma if a father or mother and or even just the mother and father are constantly battling and the small child gets in between to protect someone and that happens over and over it's in the eyes, it's in the mouth, it's in the, in, the, in the chest, it's in the legs. And so freeing the whole system from those feelings, and then the body goes, ah, oh, and it goes into a parasympathetic. So what if all of the crying, shaking, shivering, sobbing, and, and all those noises that are so impolite, actually, the body's method of transitioning from a sympathetic hypervigilance to a parasympathetic safety. And Absolutely. that our social primate brain, the limbic brain, can't cue the next brain down, the reptilian brain, the amygdala cerebellum, unless the limbic brain opens up to the relational. Interesting. Right? The CBT world is all about, well, just tell the top brain, tell everything underneath it to shut up right. or reframe it. Right. But what if the hindbrain and the amygdala cerebellum doesn't take its cues from that higher brain, but rather the next brain up, the limbic brain. Right. So the eyes and the face, and the eyes are connected to the limbic brain connection, limbic resonance. And so that, that emotional social piece has to be there if it's relational trauma. I'm curious if, so imagine if you were going to tell a bedtime story to a smart, curious 10-year-old and the intention was you wanted to give them a story that would show them or allow them to accept what they feel and to allow themselves to cry or to tremble does a story come to mind? And if so, could you tell it to us as if we were the intelligent 10 year old? Absolutely. And can I play you the sound I play when I, when I do this work? So part of what I do at the class level when I teach is I um, have lots of what I call gravity work and gravity work is a learning to fall and be held by something larger than your own bed. So the person's lying down, and I played this Brian Eno airport music for airports. Yep. And then I coach my students, now let your head fall further to the ground. How much more can you let the ground hold your busy figuring out head? Let your brain fall to the back. Let your eyes in their closed way fall further into their sockets. Give your earth, this sweet earth that is holding you always. Give her your tongue, your jaw. Give her the back of your neck and your throat. For one moment, you can stop doing 
and remember how it is to be. So now let your shoulders and all that they carry fall. Let the arms and all of their reaching be held by something reaching back. Let your spine and the back of your heart fall. Let your heart fall. Let your breakfast in your guts fall to the ground. Getting closer to the humility of the need to be held again and again. Let your legs fall, let your genitals fall. Let every inch of you soak up the need to be held, to remember yourself once again through the need to be held. Let your breath go. Let go of all of the doing, the performing, the efforting to get somewhere and stop trying for one moment, letting go of all that's on your plate. It will be there later for one moment. Let this earth remember you and you remember that it's carrying you, carrying, surrendering itself to you always. Soften your soft animal body. Let your soft animal body love what it loves. And if tears come, let the earth hold them with you. Let the tender come through the flesh. How's that, Eric? Magic. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing in the world. And I hope that we get the opportunity to have a conversation again. Thank you for just being available and asking and listening to your audience and being just, you know, full of soul and curiosity to help this world. It's, it's an honor to meet you. And I hope that all of you listening out there just what if we all just cared and got tender and let ourselves feel? What if our grief is our love and that the depth of our grief is the depth of our love? What if we're all just terrified of how big our hearts are? And what if instead of fighting, we just went to Washington, all of us together and sobbed for the genocide of Native people, for the treatment of African Americans and the treatment of every person of color? What if we just sobbed? And stop fighting. And just stop trying so hard to hold, to have control. All right, Eric, thanks. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, brother. <laughs>